It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? Or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. How do we just personally process everything that's going to be in the news this year? And you said something that has stuck with me for the last three or four weeks, which was that we just have to hold 2020 loosely. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Happy New Year, everybody. We're so happy to be back with you. We thought that we would just ease into the new year, but the news has not really allowed that. So here we are hitting the ground running. If you follow us on social media, you have no doubt seen or hopefully in your podcast feed today noticed that we got a new outfit for the new year and new decade and all the things. Yes, we worked with Braid Creative to launch a completely new Pantsu Politics brand. It was time. It was time to have a new logo and a new look because we are in a very different spot than we were in 2015. 
We are, and it feels good to have everything sort of aligning with where we are now. We have a brand new website. We worked with June Mango on our website, which is much more searchable now than it's been in the past. We hope that you love it. We hope that you're excited about all of this because we really tried to take into account all of the feedback that we get from this community as we put everything together. And one of the things that was really important to us as we thought about our new brand was how we try to do our homework on everything. And we had lots of homework to do to get ready for this episode. Yes, we are going to catch up on news from around the world, compliment um, the universe. We don't really compliment the other side anymore here at Fancy Politics because sides are so 2015. I'm just saying it's so 2010s. We've, we're in a new decade. We're not thinking binary anymore. Um, and we also wanted to spend some time in our main segment talking about... 2020, the election, the impeachment, and how we deal with these complicated issues, how we're going to talk about Donald Trump as we move into another campaign season here at Pantsuit Politics and hopefully in the media and the wider world. And then we'll close out the show, as always, by sharing what's on our mind outside politics. Of course, in the news this week, we are continuing to think of Australia. The fires that we talked about as we closed out last season have become even more devastating. I was really touched. The Golden Globes took place over the weekend by the number of tributes to the fires and this sense of urgency that climate change is here. It's real. It's affecting everyone. And we have to be thoughtful about that. We'll spend some more time on Australia probably on Friday, but we know that everyone's hearts and minds are focused on what's going on between the United States and Iran. And so that's where we're going to spend quite a bit of time in this first segment today. So as most of you know by now, on January 3rd, the Trump administration took the extraordinary move to use a drone strike to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, a general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard and the head of their Qud forces, which is basically what I've heard described as a combination of the CIA and special forces. He was an incredibly powerful figure, not only in Iran, but across the Middle East. And this extraordinary measure has really revved up the rhetoric and not only between the United States and Iran, but again, in the entire region. I wanted to put this in perspective. So I looked at a whole lot of timelines about our relationship with Iran, and we're going to put a full timeline in our show notes that you can take a look at. I particularly appreciated the work that Al Jazeera did to provide context here. It helped me to think about the hostage crisis in 1979 when a group of students seized the American embassy in Iran and held hostages there. In response, we froze $12 billion in Iranian assets and imposed a trade embargo. And that was really significant at the time, and it is very insignificant compared to the way that we've dealt with Iran ever since. Those sanctions were lifted in 1981 as part of negotiating the hostages' release. And then from 1987 really onward, 
We have used sanctions every time something happens in the Middle East related to Iran or related to a group that we believe Iran provides funding to. And you can see as you follow those sanctions over time that we just keep squeezing different sectors. When we kind of run out of business interests to squeeze, then we go to particular individuals. We try to have some relationship between the sanctions and whatever we're sanctioning for, but it gets more tenuous over time because we're running out of room. We really have used the diplomatic and economic tools available to us in dealing with the the very bad behavior of the Iranian regime. As we talk about this, there's some risk of not clearly stating, you know, Soleimani was absolutely responsible for the deaths of Americans. He was a military officer. It was extraordinary because of his stature in the Middle East. It was also not extraordinary that we assassinated someone via drone strike. We did thousands of drone strikes in the Middle East under the Obama administration. And so All of this is really complex, and I think anyone who says otherwise is not being honest about the facts. But if you follow us along throughout time, you know, we really ran out of options because we have so liberally used sanctions in our relationship with Iran. It is interesting to think about the Iranian hostage crisis and the huge historical impact that had, so much so that you still see President Trump referencing the hostage crisis and using the number 52 um, when he was threatening to bomb cultural heritage sites and sort of signaling that with the number of sites and the number of students that were taken hostage at the American embassy. And to think that the impact of this event was so huge. And yet when you look at the sanctions in relation to the fact that we've just scaled up and scaled up and scaled up are not proportionate to what we're doing now um, when there are tit for tats between the United States and Iran. And, you know, there has been basically a proxy war. Iran figured out and, you know, I'm not an Iranian expert. I don't know how much of this you can credit to Soleimani, but they figured out that in order to be a player in the Middle East, that it couldn't be by brute force and that one of their um, strategic advantages was asserting influence throughout the region, using Hezbollah in Lebanon, using Shia majority in Iraq, using these militias, funding them, arming them to exert pressure And to cost American lives and cost American influence and money and power in the region. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that. And I think that, you know, everyone knew that Soleimani was sort of the power player behind a lot of this, that he exerted enormous influence not only in Iran, but around the entire region. Other presidents had been presented with the option of taking him out and had chosen not to do it because, um, for one thing, Iran, whether we like what they do or not, is a sovereign nation. (laughs) And we have not assassinated a leader of a foreign nation or even a bureaucrat in a foreign nation since World War II. At least that's what most of the media outlets are reporting. And so, I mean, this extraordinary measure from 
the Trump administration shows that not only had we come to the end of this sanctions game that we've been escalating since 1979 and that they were out of road, but that I don't there there seems to be no consideration or concern for what if we take this extraordinary measure, if we prove that we're willing to take this extraordinary measure, then what's next? Then what happens next? This whole situation has really brought to mind for me this question of what are we even talking about in most of the language that we use? Because as you just described, this sanctions game has been long. It has been intense. It has been really harmful to the Iranian people. That's another risk here. You know, we're talking about Iran as though the country and its people are all aligned. They just went through these incredible protests, outrage at the Iranian government for fuel price increases directly related to our sanctions. You know, the Iranian regime cut off internet access in the country connected to those protests. It's not like the Iranian people deserve to be painted with the same brush as Iran's leadership, certainly as the Quds forces. So what are we even talking about when we talk about Iran? What are we even talking about when we say war? Because if if the economic pressures that we've been applying and these retaliatory actions from Iran through paramilitary groups, through terrorist organizations that they were supporting— attacks on ships in the Strait of Hormuz, if that isn't war, I mean, that's more traditionally war than a lot of what is happening that we definitely call war right now. And so I think we were already there, and certainly we were already there without congressional authorization. That has been, though, the state of our foreign policy for what 30, 40 years now. So when we talk about whether this action was legal or not, I think, well, what do we mean? Do we mean under domestic law? I think almost certainly it's consistent with what Congress has allowed to go unchecked from several administrations in a row. Does that make it legal? I have no idea. I can't imagine that a court would say it was not okay, that it was an improper use of executive authority. Does that mean it is legal? Do we mean, does it actually comply with the law and the Constitution, or do we mean that it should have some sort of redress or that it should represent the spirit of those documents? I just, I think all of the takes on this provoke more questions than they answer. Well, I think with regards to the Iranian people, I think you're exactly right that saying they all feel the same way and would be to ignore the protest really extensive protest, not to mention you have protests in Iraq where people were trying to get rid of the Iranian influence. So it's very complicated. But when you take an action like this that escalates the conflict so dramatically, what you do is solidify support behind the government you say you want to get rid of. You know, I was thinking about how impossible it was to criticize the Bush administration after 9-11 during the war on terror. I mean, everybody remembers what happens to the Dixie Chicks. So, you know, for it to be that intense in a democracy in the face of an attack, you know, the Iranian people most certainly see this as an attack. And this is going to make anybody that wants to criticize the Islamic government um, to criticize the crackdowns during the protest impossible because that's how people get 
and when they feel like they're under attack. Um, the nationalism and the tribalism, all of that just is fueled. And I think when we talk about, well, is are we at war? I mean, I think that we've been in a proxy war with Iran on and off for decades. And I think that that's going to continue. And it's just more and more bubbling to the surface because the Trump administration, I do think, is exceeding even the extensive precedent for presidential power when it comes to actions like this. Like, I'm not going to argue that Congress has not sort of given up a massive amount of authority when it comes to war powers. But I think to do this and then to to say, oh, well, it was because there was an imminent threat, but then not speak to Congress, not speak to the Gang of Eight, not, and then to share this information and have members of Congress say, we see no imminent threat, no more than there has ever been while this man was alive. I do think that that is pushing the needle even further than Obama, than the Bush administration even. And I think that is incredibly concerning and dangerous. I think Congress is the body that is going to have to hold the administration accountable for that, though. That's not going to come from the judiciary. Congress and voters are going to have to decide that we are tired of this. And the problem is there aren't any good answers in the Middle East. It is impossible to tell in any given conflict which players we have alliances with and why and which players we are against in that conflict and why. It is so thorny and difficult. And all of this, to me, illustrates how horribly broken our entire approach to that region has been for a very long time. And if that motivates Congress, as it seems to be motivating at least Democrats in Congress, which everyone will view very cynically, but if it motivates Congress to say, you know, we really need to step back and figure out what we're doing here, I don't know what the point of any of this is. President Trump's best instinct, in my mind, has been to keep the United States out of new conflicts. He has been at his worst militarily when he wants to withdraw troops in places where troop presence seems to be working, at least it seems to be the best of a number of unattractive options. And so you know that he didn't think to himself, let's go start a war with Iran. I don't think he he believed that. My concern as I try to leave politics at water's edge, as I try to give the administration the benefit of the doubt here, is about how quickly and loosely he's always spoken about Iran. I think about how he says you know, that the the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran nuclear deal that we just dropped like truckloads of cash into the country and how inaccurate and misleading that is. Because what happened is that assets belonging to Iranians had been frozen under previous sanctions. And so they got access to their own money. It didn't come from the American Treasury. And those types of statements to the public over and over again, you know, erode my ability to say, wow, this was a very big deal, but they must have had a good reason to do it. The other important piece is that we're not just talking about Congress 
and the president and Americans here. We're talking about the entire world. We're talking about a multilateral approach with that agreement that was succeeding. It was succeeding under the idea that there was a goal, and the goal was to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. That was the goal. And when I hear many of the media outlets playing Trump's speeches from the last campaign when he was busting on this deal every chance he got, all I hear is, well, we're not trying to achieve a specific objective. We're not trying to make the world safer by preventing Iran from getting a nuclear deal. We're trying to assert our idea of the world. We're trying to say we're strong, they, they're weak, they need to make every change we require of them. Which, how you can say that out of one side of your mouth while out the other side of your mouth talking about what a mistake Afghanistan and Iraq were, not to mention the Vietnam War, is mind-blowing to me. That you can, you know, especially in reading the Afghanistan papers, seeing that we make this same mistake over and over again, which is because we're the United States, we get to tell you what to do. And you must listen because we are strong and you are weak. And that approach fails over and over and over again. And what did they do? They shredded this agreement that was achieving the objective that the world had agreed and that the world was willing to stand together and enforce was a good objective. It's not perfect. Of course, we don't want the people of Iran oppressed by their own government. We don't want an Islamic regime. But what we want more than anything is to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And instead of staying focused on an achievable objective that the world agrees on, we shred it. We're strong. We're on our own. We have no one else to stand by our side as we escalate this conflict because we're strong and you're weak and we, we, we do what we want for we don't care about international law. We don't care about the rule of law at all if you're the Trump administration internationally or domestically. And that's all that matters. And it's just so disturbing. And that concern for more than Americans operates in many directions because, as you talked about, as we talked about Soleimani being responsible for the deaths of American citizens, he certainly was responsible for many more deaths of non-American citizens. Even though thousands of people are mourning in the streets of Iran right now, there are people in the Middle East celebrating, feeling that they are somewhat safer without him, although I would like all of us to let go. And this is difficult as Americans, but I wish we would let go of the idea that assassinating any individual leader at this point in history is going to make anyone a whole lot safer and is often going to escalate the dangers. So you have that aspect of it. The JCPOA is another pressure point that we've run out of space on because when you hear that Iran has announced it's not going to comply with that anymore, that is at the end of a series of moves it was making. You know, since we've had this sort of tit-for-tat between Iran and the United States happening, Iran has gradually eroded its compliance. Much like sanctions increasing on our end, them pulling back their compliance on specific requirements in that agreement has been a chip on their side of this dispute. And now everybody's run out of space. What happens from here? And the hard truth is we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know if they will take a more traditional approach. They have lots of options. There were lots of hot takes that, 
you know, war with Iran could look very differently than it would have in 2003, than it would have looked like in previous Middle East conflicts. Like, we just don't know. And I think that is what makes this so scary. That's what makes this escalation seem so dangerous and so foolhardy and so lacking any sort of strategic understanding of the region or our goals in the region. And I mean, I think that's why everyone feels so unsettled. As of the afternoon of January 6th when we're recording, I feel like what I know is Congress should have been consulted in advance of this and was not. And that is a grave error that will have lasting consequence, I fear, that this was an overreach by the administration that leaves them with even fewer options if something escalates on Iran's end, that it is damaging a very fragile relationship we have with the Iraqi government at a time when Iraq is already in a state of political turmoil, that all of that means openings for ISIS in the region, especially as we announce that our resources are too stretched to continue the, the mission against ISIS. To, we were having to pause that vocally, publicly. And that we should all not rely on Twitter as our primary source of information about anything like this happening. Because if you just say the word Iran, you have oversimplified the situation. There is no way to capture all of this in that social media format. Well, Sarah, we're going to talk about 2020 next. And as we get there, I think it's important to realize that as complex as everything we just talked about is, it is far from the only issue in the inbox of the president and the next president. So early on Sunday, three Americans were killed at Manday Bay Airfield in Kenya. It's a military base used by U.S. counterterrorism forces. The attack was conducted by al-Shabaab extremists who were based in Somalia and linked to al-Qaeda. Five of the attackers were killed. The attack also destroyed several U.S. aircraft and vehicles, and the extremists used indirect and small firearms and say that they killed 17 U.S. citizens and nine Kenyan soldiers. But the U.S. Africa Command said that there that was an exaggeration. Five people were arrested, and al-Shabaab has launched a number of attacks in Kenya against buses, schools, and malls. The U.S. has targeted al-Shabaab recently in airstrikes in Somalia. It's important to know that al-Shabaab is a Sunni Muslim group. The leadership of Iran is Shiite, and that sectarian distinction is important. There does not appear at this point to be any link between what unfolded in Kenya and what's unfolding between the United States and Iran. With the asterisks that the Associated Press has quoted a couple of sources who hypothesize that Iran would like to cultivate a partnership with al-Shabaab, and this could be al-Shabaab signaling some openness to that partnership. The weight of authority, however, seems to be that there were other reasons for al-Shabaab to do this, including a botched attack earlier. And so we shouldn't make too much meaning between the timing of these events right now. Also in Venezuela, we see another escalation between Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido. So if you remember last year, Juan Guaido claimed victory in the parliamentary elections. But Nicolas Maduro, the current president, refused to give up power. Juan Guaido is recognized by many in the international community, including the United States, as the winner of that election. And so their National Assembly was coming together to vote 
Juan Guaido party had the majority, and so he was expected to be the new head of the National Assembly. And then Nicolas Maduro had his security forces basically surround the building and prevent Juan Guaido and the opposition members of the legislature from entering. There's this insane picture of Juan Guaido trying to leap over the iron fence to get in and climbing up the secu- like the security forces, um, but they were unsuccessful. Nicolas Maduro's um, preferred candidate was sworn in, and Guaido's place, and Guado is calling this a parliamentary coup. But then, hours later, a majority of the legislature met in an emergency session at a newspaper office and re-elected Guaido. And so this adds pressure to the United States because we have very publicly supported Guaido. Mike Pompeo has issued a statement regarding this event, expressing more support for Guaido. He declared himself acting president a full year ago. I can't believe it's been that long. And a full year later, despite support from the United States and other countries, uh, Maduro is showing no signs of stopping holding on to power in Venezuela. And you have to imagine that over the course of another year, this escalates to some sort of resolution. Before we turn to 2020, Sarah, who would you like to compliment this week? Well, you mentioned the Golden Globes at the top of the show. Um, it was a really great Award ceremony, actually. I always like the Golden Globes. It's a little feisty. I mean, Ricky Gervais, the host, was terrible, but we had lots of good speeches. And in particular, I wanted to compliment Michelle Williams, her acceptance speech for her win for Best Actress in Fosse Verdon, which she is amazing, and you sh- everybody should watch that, um, really struck me. It was powerful. It was to the point. Um, and so I thought we'd share a little audio from that. I know my choices might look different than yours, but thank God or whomever you pray to that we live in a country founded on the principle that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. So women, 18 to 118, when it is time to vote, please do so in your own self-interest. It's what men have been doing for years. It's what men have been doing for years, which is why the world looks so much like them. But don't forget, we are the largest voting body in this country. Let's make it look more like us. What about you, Beth? Who do you want to compliment? Less of a compliment and more of just sending into the universe thoughts for everybody involved in the Harvey Weinstein trial that begins this week. There are already media reports about the PR chaos around this trial, tons of reporting about how Weinstein has been through several rounds of lawyers, how there have been some issues on the prosecution side, how women have determined to testify and then for one reason or another decided not to. The women who are testifying are going to go through just an unbelievable trauma because not only will they have to relive aspects of what they endured from him over and over through meticulous questioning, but their credibility will be attacked vigorously by lawyers in a closed setting. It's just different than what's happened around this story so far. The criminal justice system is one of those places where I think you can really feel the absence of women in the process of deciding how our government is going to operate. 
because the rights of the accused are so sacrosanct and important, and they are, and I believe that. And also, the way that victims are treated in the system is horrific as well. And so I just hope, however this turns out, that everyone who is attached in some way to the outcome here, and that is so many people for so many different reasons, knows that this verdict is not a verdict on the entire Me Too movement and that every person's story still matters no matter what sentence he ultimately does or does not serve. It's just a hard moment that is carrying too much weight. There's too much pressure around this single event. And so I'm thinking of everyone involved, and I feel a great amount of appreciation for the people who have decided to go through the the horror of testifying. Next up, we're going to talk about 2020. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
conversation, Sarah, when we were talking about the Democratic debate in December that led us to how do we not become an election podcast and how do we cover the election in a way that is different and unique and true to who we are? And how do we just personally process everything that's going to be in the news this year? And you said something that has stuck with me for the last three or four weeks, which was that we just have to hold 2020 loosely. Yes, it's really difficult. And when I say 2020, I don't even just mean the election. I mean the impeachment. I mean the end of Donald Trump's first term, whether or not he's elected to a second one. I mean... For better or for worse, 2016 shook a lot of things loose. And it feels like to me that we're finally having the the energy or the wherewithal or maybe just the time and space to look at some of that for the first time and to think about what we're going to do next. And, you know, I was thinking about this as I read The Atlantic's How to Stop a Civil War, their December issue, which was so good and and really touched on what do we do in the face of foreign interference? What do we do in the face of hyperpolarization? What do we do in the face of a Congress that is stagnant? and broken and systems that are broken. And how do we think about all these things in the face of the upcoming presidential election? And I just think we can't put the solution to all of these problems and issues that 2016 shook loose and brought to the surface on one Democratic candidate or even one election. It's too much. It's too much pressure. We can't make the nominee for the Democratic nomination carry the weight of all that. Um, We can't make one election carry the weight of all that. We can't make the media coverage for one election carry all that. I just think that we have to hold it loosely and just start moving in the right direction and start making the next right choice and not letting our emotional reaction to the continued trauma. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and call Donald Trump a continued trauma of this administration. Just leave us so beaten down. When I think about the relationship that many of us have with the federal government right now, it makes me think about a relationship where you've had a parent who is absent or abusive or otherwise just broken in the way they approach a child. And to think that that gets fixed in one election cycle is like believing that that parenting relationship gets fixed because the parent starts going to therapy and apologizes. It's one step. It's a really significant, important step. And it's one piece. There is a whole lot of rebuilding to do. 
because we are in relationship with our government. I was so captivated by something in the Politico playbook recently that talked about the the ongoing negotiation, which I put in air quotes, about how an impeachment trial will be conducted and how Democrats are reiterating that only four Republican senators would have to go with Democrats just on how the trial is conducted in order to ensure that witnesses are called. Just four Republican senators. And I thought, well, that sounds achievable. And then the next line from Politico is, when have four Republican senators gone against McConnell on something this significant? And it's true. And it makes me breathe differently when I have those reminders that everything in our system that is built to be achievable through the working of representative government has proven unable to rise to the partisan bend that the Republican Party specifically has decided to prioritize above everything else. One of the pieces in The Atlantic really made the case that for our democracy to survive, we need conservatives. We need the center right to step back up and to stand up to Trump. And it is really difficult, especially when you're thinking about 2020, when you see all the moderates in Congress retiring and saying they're not going to run again, when you see the way that they are squashing any primary challenge against the president, and when you see the way that they are seemingly going to handle impeachment. It it is concerning to me. I think that this piece makes a really good case that we need the center right. We need those people. And that's the thing, like as long as the people more progressive end of the political spectrum who've lost trust in much the same way, you know, it is hard to feel magnanimous towards conservatives or Republicans in the face of this this history and these things that we're looking at. You know, Nicholas and I watched the report over the break, went and saw Bombshell, went and saw all these you know, movies, read these long reads, caught up on all this stuff. And it and there is this hard emotional reaction that's like, forget it. Like, I don't want to have conservatives present at all. You have sacrificed your right to be present in this conversation because of the way you have just flipped at every possible opportunity and made the wrong call. I mean, listen, in fairness, the report is really, really hard on the Obama administration as well. But, you know, it, it is it. It's so hard to feel wronged. And I think this is what you see bubbling up in the 2020 election as well. It's this debate between do we just leave it all on the table to beat Trump or are we trying to make the case any other case? to the American people policy-wise or values-wise, or is it just we're going to do whatever it takes to beat him because they have done whatever it takes to stay in power for decades? And it's it's like looking at all that history and feeling all that injustice and being asked, like this piece does, to say, yes, but we have to have this perspective at the table. It's hard. I just think it's really hard. I don't know what center right means anymore. I tend to think 
that it means something approximating the values that I hold, skepticism of federal power, interest in a restrained executive, a somewhat hawkish foreign policy leaning. As we were talking about Iran, I agree with everything that you said about our foolishness and our propensity to make the same mistakes over and over in the Middle East. I also can't ignore the voice in my head that says, but what if we don't? How many more women are raped in ISIS camps and how many more people are subjected to chemical weapon use by Bashar al-Assad? You know, so so a somewhat hawkish foreign policy perspective, I mean, I think that I fit into some of those categories. I don't know what you do when the entity that is supposed to represent some of that, at least tangentially, has gone so far away from them. And that's something that we've talked to death about in in previous years on this podcast, and there's still no resolution. And so coming into the Democratic primary process, trying to find my place, I'll tell you one of the only conclusions that I've reached about this whole idea of holding this loosely while recognizing its importance is that I want to be open to where I find any thread of commonality. I have in the past always emphasized first my point of departure, and I don't want to do that, not because I want to cozy up to the really progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but because as a citizen, I want to find some places where we can just not be at battle with one another. We got an email that I so appreciated from our longtime listener, Lou, after we talked about Elizabeth Warren's healthcare proposal. And he said that he noticed that I tried to be generous about her proposal. That's the word he used, generous. And it meant a lot to me. And I thought, that's who I want to be in 2020. I want to be generous about these candidates, even Bernie Sanders, who I have not been gracious about in the past. I will just admit it. I want to be generous because some kind of generosity of spirit is all the control that I have to exercise. I can't be one of those four Republican senators, but I can be generous and open-minded and looking for places where there is potential. Still noting those objections that I agree with that Atlantic piece are really important in our country. I don't know how else to exert any kind of reasonable influence when everything feels so tenuous. Yeah, With regards to the primary, I've really shifted. I still support Elizabeth Warren. I am excited to see Julian Castro endorse her, although I was sad to see him leave the primary. I still most identify with her worldview and her approach to problem solving, and I still feel really encouraged by the way she's running her campaign including adapting to the fact that she's struggling um, in the face of some of her more progressive policies and where they're landing with voters. And yet I I don't, I feel sort of weirdly more generous, I guess is a good word. Like I, I'm not as mad at Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and especially Bernie I've been rethinking And I can't believe I just said those words out loud. But, you know, I still think they're both too old. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. Um, But 
for better or for worse, particularly Bernie, connects with people. I mean, I think his fundraising and the passion of his supporters um, is something to be listened to. And, you know, I saw an interview with Rahm Emanuel, and he was saying that the surest path to victory is to prevent Trump from playing the victim or anti-establishment outsider. And I think that's right. And I think what Bernie in particular offers, I feel this with Elizabeth Warren, but for better or for worse, I think more people feel it with Bernie, is this idea that he is a true believer. And when you are facing the distrust of the federal government, when you are facing this just sense of betrayal that our government has lied and been on the side of the wealthy and the powerful and that has been perpetuating itself for decades until we have this massive income inequality, until we have a a place where people don't feel like they're a part of the process or the government at all, um, then there is, I think, something important and something we shouldn't ignore about a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who, you know, I have a friend who lives in Budapest, and he was saying to the people there when he talks to them about um, the Democratic primary, like, from their perspective, it's obviously, it should obviously be Bernie, because he's the only one that's been saying the same thing consistently for his entire life. Like, there's something about that to them. In the same way, I think that the appeal of Donald Trump was that he he had an authenticity. Now, I don't believe Donald Trump to be an authentic person in many ways. I think he lies constantly. But there is a consistency to some of his um, philosophies and at least his approaches that appeals to people. And, you know, I don't know if what America needs in the face of all this trauma and problems and challenges we're facing is someone who is consistent and authentic and is ready for radical change, or if it's somebody like Biden who is more of the same and the hand at the wheel. And I just, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I don't know either. It's interesting that that consistency is what people gravitate towards so much when I personally find myself more interested in candidates who are willing to say, I have listened to voters about this and I've changed my mind. Or I've learned something over the past 10 years since, say, for example, I was a prosecutor in California and my views on this have changed and perhaps I would handle it differently today. I really appreciate people who are willing to learn in public and grow and show that they care about the feedback that they're getting to their ideas. But I do think that you're on to something important with that just raw connection that people feel. I wonder how Andrew Yang would be doing if he were covered like a serious candidate by most media outlets, because I think people have that raw connection with him, too. They they trust that he believes what he's saying to them and that he will tell them the truth. And I think that he would be doing even more than he's doing right now, which is amazing in terms of fundraising and support if he were getting the kind of press that the top tier is getting. It seems to be getting a little better. I feel like they're quoting him more often, and I see him being mentioned in the tier. You know, I heard almost every outlet quote his response to Soleimani's attack, so I think that shows a small shift. 
And I, you know, I think the other part of this is when we're talking about our approach to 2020 and how we're going to talk about it on the podcast, I think we also, you know, as a community have to think about how we're going to talk about it with each other. I'm reading this really interesting book right now called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change by Eaton Hirsch. And we're hoping to have him on the show to talk about this because I do think that there is political power in how we talk about politics. Obviously, I think that's what we built this community around. But it is a very difficult line to walk. And it is very difficult to move beyond reaction and emotion and just sharing that reaction and emotion and thinking you've done your part. And, you know, I think we all have to be hyper aware of that as we go into 2020. And if we don't want to let Donald Trump play the victim and play the anti-establishment and steer every conversation, then we're going to have to be even more aware and conscious of how we talk about candidates how the media is steering the conversation, be it about Andrew Yang or Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren, and if we're okay with that and if we think that's right. And I think that includes having conversations about the coverage. Which candidate do you feel like you never hear from? Why do you think that is? Um, What Donald Trump controversy is occupying all the space in your life right now? How can we turn away from that? You know, I think it's just really, it's a big task. And it's its just the beginning of, I think, this journey that we'll still be hopefully on as Americans, thinking about our new media environment and how that affects our elections, you know, long after Donald Trump is out of the White House. It requires such a shift. I've been talking to my girls a lot lately about the word enough because the, it, every argument that they have comes down in some way to them operating from a place of scarcity. So I am always saying to them, there are enough toys. There is enough time. There is enough of my lap for you to both sit here. There is enough of everything. And one of the things that I thought was so brilliantly stated, um, I think it was in the Jonathan Haidt piece in The Atlantic, was talking about how social media rewards all the characteristics that you would just abhor in someone that you were actually spending time with because the feedback loop is completely different. And then I read that really closely in time to when I read one of Seth Godin's morning emails, and he was talking about how we should not be looking to speak on a viral scale that we should be looking to speak to small communities of people who really care what we have to say. And I thought if you put those two things together, thinking about how we talk about politics in the election, what if you, when you enter a conversation in person or make a post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or wherever else you engage on these things, think, how do I talk about this in a way that people think I want some of that? I want to be a part of that kind of energy. I want to be around that person. I want to know more about what that person thinks. I don't feel beaten over the head. I don't feel bullied. I don't feel condescended to. I am not constantly told to just Google something, whatever it might be, right? How do you talk about this in a way that makes people feel attracted to what you have? 
And I want to do that and bring that sense of enoughness to the Democratic primary instead of lamenting all the time that there are too many people. As we're losing people, I miss them. And I want to think about that. There's enough. There's enough airtime. You know, there's enough money, clearly. There, there is enough opportunity to have a diverse group of voices here and go into an election meaningfully with all these options. It's okay that the field is not going to be winnowed in advance of Super Tuesday. It's okay. There is enough space as citizens for us to make one step, as you said, toward the next right thing. I feel like I'm quoting Frozen 2 and Emily Freeman here to get out of the morass that we've been stuck in. Well, there's this beautiful gift right in the middle of that Atlantic issue, which is the my friend Mr. Rogers piece by Tom Junod, the guy whose friendship is the basis for the documentary and the movie and the whole thing. And, you know, I love that part. It took me way off guard because he actually references a conversation he had with Mr. Rogers about the shooting at my high school, which I was not expecting and brings tears to my eyes right now just to think about it. But he talks about... You know, what if we, instead of saying, I'm going to do something big, I'm going to do something small. And I think in a democracy, power should always be at the center of our thoughts and conversations and strategies. You know, the power is vested in the people. And You know, just like this book I'm reading is talking about, politics is for power. But there are small acts that add up to great power. And at no time is that more true than during an election. Not because that election is the end-all be-all. Not because that election is the only one that matters in our lifetime. Or because the stakes are so high that we can justify any behavior towards our fellow citizens. But because exercising that power through small acts like political conversations, like voting, like knocking on doors, it adds up. It's a practice. And it's only when you can see that power flow in that way that you can find a steady hopefulness in knowing that those small acts are available to you at any time. Not because they're going to fix anything, not because it's a transaction, not because there's a right answer or an end solution, but Because we get to participate and there's something beautiful in that and powerful in that. And I want to keep doing that. I mean, I think sometimes the only thing I can do in the face of 2020 and impeachment and global conflict and climate change is just decide, do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to keep being an American? Do I want to keep participating in this democracy? I mean, I had a conversation over the break with a friend who said, no, I don't really care if some of the states left the union. And that's valid. And I get how some people could end up in that spot. But I do care. And I do want to 
maintain this experiment that we're all engaged in together. And that means small acts that hopefully change the balance of power and participating in this process that I can't guarantee the outcome of and not putting all the emphasis and raising the stakes so high on every individual controversy or election or Facebook, Twitter thread, because that's exhausting. And I don't want to do it anymore. I don't think many of us do. And so we have to find another path forward. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Okay, I know we're supposed to do outside of politics, but all I've wanted for a long time is to talk about bombshell. So here's how maybe I can make it outside of politics. Do you think there was some kind of fairy godmother situation where Charlize Theron was just transformed into Megyn Kelly and then maybe at midnight every day she was herself again? Because, whoa. I just, I heard in an interview that she said she spent several hours in the makeup chair. And so there must have been some sort of taping, especially around her eyes. That was, they were so good. Like, just her look was so good. And the her voice and all of that put together was unbelievable. It was, it was, it really was unbelievable. I mean, they're both beautiful women, but it was beyond just, aren't these adjacently attractive women similar to each other? It was not like, oh, there's Nicole Kidman with Gretchen Carlson hair. She, I thought Nicole Kidman was great in it, but this was... An unbelievable transformation. And Charlize Theron is like that. She, you know, I remember watching Monster and I couldn't believe it was her. So she's she is able to shapeshift, basically. Uh, but I thought her performance was incredible. I thought this movie was so important. Chad and I saw it together, and I was saying to him as we left, all of this would have gotten lost without it being memorialized in this way. That's just the sad reality of it. And I'm so glad that they memorialized it in this way, and I hope it does really well and prompts lots of other similar memorializations of this type of story. And I am really, really glad that Gretchen Carlson was portrayed as she was in this movie. I'm really struggling with this idea of memorialization because I caught up on all the things over our break. I finished my reading list, including Wolf Hall that I've been reading for two years. Um, And then I was like, okay, I'm going to watch all the movies and all the TV. So I watched Bombshell. I watched Hustlers, which memorializes another difficult time in American history and people behaving badly. Um, And I'm talking about the men they stole from, not the strippers doing the stealing, for the record. Um, And we watched The Report, which is an incredibly good movie, but incredibly difficult to watch. And all these things together, it is, it's just, it gets hard. It gets back to the previous segment. It gets back to this, like, I mean, we're, we're so bad at so many things. And, and so many people, especially as we were sort of wrapping up this decade, and a lot of these um, movies speak to, you know, either the Me Too movement or the, the financial collapse or the war on terror, and all these people behaving so badly and breaking the law and not being held responsible. I mean, Bombshell is partially so fulfilling because Roger Ailes was held responsible. I did not know the flow of events with regards to Gretchen Carlson and her um, recording of their conversation, so that was just truly beautiful and, like, the best form of justice. But 
you know, otherwise, you know, Fox News is still there. It's still incredibly powerful. I don't think they've in any way, shape or form fixed or addressed um, the misogyny and sexism at Fox News, even if Roger Ailes is gone and Bill O'Reilly is gone you know, Donald Trump is still the president. And so it's just, it's hard, you know, like you watch enough of that and you're like, why is there no justice in the world? No justice, no peace. I wish if Twitter is good for anything, it is good for sharing little video clips. I wish that that moment where Kate McKinnon is explaining how every story is terrify, titillate, terrify, titillate, That should be played constantly because just giving that a name like that and having Kate McKinnon say it in the context of this movie could be extraordinarily powerful. I get what you're saying. I feel a little bit balanced because I did see A Beautiful Day twice. And I am here for all of the Mr. Rogers memorialization as well. And that's another thing. Would my daughters know about Mr. Rogers were it not for me constantly saying that that's where Daniel Tiger came from, plus Tom Hanks' portrayal? I don't know. But I am. I think that being with all of that is important. And you just need like a good competition reality show to round things out. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I did watch Marvelous Ms. Maisel. Um in a very specific way for our followers on Instagram, I already know this. I had heard enough people basically say they were traumatized by the finale. So what I did was just not watch it. I stopped at episode seven, and I just pretended like that was the end of the season, and then I will watch the finale when the next season comes out, and I don't have to hang in purgatory, television purgatory, wondering what happened to this character that I love so much. Then that show is really fun and usually pretty light. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just not not going to do it. And I'm feeling really good about my choice. I had so many listeners reach out and be like, I wish I'd done that. I wish somebody had told me to, done that, to do that. So I tried to balance it out. And I think, you know, to continue this thread from The Atlantic, Lin-Manuel Miranda writes a piece about the importance of art in it as well. And I think it is so important to have these movies and these memorializations where we um, can have these artistic expressions and see it all put together and give us really space and time to think about these things. Um, it's just hard sometimes when you do it all at once. I also watched A Marriage Story. Have you watched that yet? I have not. It's not your jam. You're yeah. not going to watch it, are you? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <laughs> Thanks for just accepting me as I am in that way. I watch anything with Adam Driver in it. That's just like it's written in my DNA. So um, that's where I'm at. Actually, that's not true because I did not go see the Star Wars because I heard I, I like Star Wars only in the best case scenario, which usually means Adam Driver's in it. But I heard such terrible reviews. I was like, forget it. I'm not going. So I sent my kids and my husband and I didn't even see it. Did you? I'm, sh- I'm assuming you guys saw it. Yeah, because you saw it the night of the debate. On the Thursday night. Are you kidding me? Yes. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I am not like such a hardcore Star Wars fan that I am going to have a ton of insider critiques of it. I really thought it was a good, satisfying way to wrap up-ish because we know they're not finished. I liked the diversity in the movie. I like Ray a lot. I had one objection. So if you haven't watched it, just turn it down for a second. There is a moment when Ray and Kylo Ren kiss, okay? And I was not here for it. Because I thought Disney was doing this amazing job of showing us a different kind of male-female relationship. And then they just 
dashed it from me in this one scene. I was so upset about that one kiss. But other than that, I thought it was really fun. To that critique of why couldn't they follow a good thing they had going, and this is probably not Disney, this is probably J.J. Abrams, the best critique I heard, and I think this is really um, important, is that, you know, in the last one, they seem to be following this thread of, like, it's not as much about bloodline. With, the like, the little boy and using the force for the broom and, like, the force is available to people. It's not about where you were born or what you look like. That seemed really, like, a really awesome new direction. And then they just killed it all and brought back all this bloodline stuff in the last movie. And I thought, man, yeah, they should have stuck with that because I loved that moment at the end of the last one. And I thought... I thought that was a really fair critique. So lean away from that, Disney. Go back to the, like, forces available to anybody. It's not about who, where or who you were born to. My husband completely shares that outrage. He was furious about that change. He also does not like, someone died, but don't worry, you're going to see them again in the next movie. He's tired of that. Don't be babies about it. If you're gonna, I mean, you have to create conflict by killing off major characters. You can't undo it every time, you wimps. But here's what I said. Isn't the loss of Iron Man enough for one year? Do we have to take more? Here's the most satisfying finale that that I saw. We finished the morning show, which I know that you were not into. It was so satisfying, the end of it. Like, to the point of there's all this bad behavior in the world and it's horribly depressing. Sometimes art can not only reflect that back to us, but show us a better way. And I just was so excited about the way this thing wrapped up. And I really hope there's another season. I thought it got better every single episode. I love watching Jennifer Aniston succeed. It's just a little quirk that I have. And I thought it was phenomenal. Oh, I love it. Well, we hope you spent your break catching up on all the awesome TV and movies out there. And if you have some recommendations that we can't miss, please send them our way. We have a new email address, hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And so that we are both getting all the interactions and all your emails, which we do read, even if we do not respond to every single one, please send them to hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your patience while we were on break. Thank you for saying that you missed us. It means a lot. We'll be back with you on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.